Amen. God help us. Always a good thing to ask for. Uh, Ron Skates, obviously, is not here. He, he, he was going to be here for half of the class and then uh, run over to uh, do a baptism for a, a young family that he knows that he married, and they changed the service time, so he asked me to do the whole thing. So uh, what he's doing, as you know, he's, he started a series on uh, stupidity, a common contemporary, that's what he's calling it. And it's, uh, well, he's got a lot of material to work with <laughs> because it's, I mean, every, if, and matter of fact, he told me, he sent me an email yesterday and he said, he said, I'm going to start asking the people every week if they will listen on the news. And when we come to Sunday school, we will share the stupidest thing we've heard that's going on. So uh, that'll take up the whole hour. I mean, if we just <laughs> go around. So uh, you keep that in mind for next week when Ron is back and he's uh, taken over. He, you know, we, we may kick around some things together, but boy, howdy, aren't there a bunch of stupid things. We can't believe, really, for, for those of us of a certain age, I mean, even if you're in your 40s, you have to have seen the, uh, uh, the degradation, the, the degeneration, the insanity that is quickly uh, encroaching upon our culture and our world and our country. And it's, uh, it's, it's very sad, it's alarming, it's disconcerting. But the Lord is still in control. And, uh, you know, for people that say, well, you know, where was God when this happened? Where was God when that happened? He's where he's always been. Even when his son was being offered for the sins of the world, he was sitting on his throne of the universe, and he still is, and he's got everything under control. Now, there's a, a couple of things I want to mention. Uh, Ron, Ron was going to talk about uh, Gen, uh, Genesis 2 and 24, which is the only verse. Well, first, let me read it to you out of Genesis 2 and 24. This is in the initiation of everything, the Lord setting everything up. Moses writes, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That verse is the only verse in the Scriptures that is quoted by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Now, in the world of hermeneutics and biblical interpretation, a verse like that carries a lot of weight when both Jesus and the Apostle Paul uh, quoted. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of other ones that, that they could have picked, but it, it's not a random thing. It's just the way it happened. And uh, uh, this is a fundamental elementary fact of good life. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. The old King James says he will leave and cleave. And uh, we like the old King James because it rhymes. <laughs> he shall leave and cleave. And uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, I, I look around here. I bet you we've got several couples that have been married longer than 50 years here, right? Longer? Okay. Over 50? Over 50? Over 50? Chuck, how many years were you married before your wife? 55. 55, yeah. My folks were married 63 when my father died. Yes? How many? 67. 67! Man, that's... Wow, that's... Uh, that's a real thing. That's, that's a real thing. You know, we... <laughs> I know people whose marriage is equated to dog years. I mean, every year feels like seven. So, <laughs> but we're not going to discuss that because that's, that's what I've heard. That's not me. That's, that's, that's what I've heard. So, you know, anyway, the 50th anniversary seems to be a, a big deal. Somebody said, and I wish I could tell you who said this first, but probably a lot of smart people have said it, that we really don't know what love is until we've been married for 25 years. And uh, we're, my wife and I are in our 45th right now, so we're close. I can't believe it. I, I can't believe it. I, uh, I know. <laughs> I know. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. That's, <laughs> that's the way that goes. But this is the foundational verse. Ron is going to talk more about this next week. I'm just introducing it and celebrating with you. And then I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, and 17, and we're going to read about the inspiration of Scripture. Because as much as we value and cherish this verse and the fact that it's the only verse quoted by Jesus and the Apostle Paul, the only reason we appreciate that is because we hold to the inspiration of Scripture. Once that foundational doctrinal truth of the total 
inspiration, and inerrancy. You say, no mistakes. You know, when it's interpreted rightly, the mistakes, maybe there's a scribal error or something. Sometimes there's different kings that are called by different names. But there's nothing so substantive that should cause us to uh, discount the accuracy of the Word of God. There's, there's just too much here, and we have it. And, uh, you know, the leaving and cleaving, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping back and forth. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into the uh, verses in, in 2 Timothy 3 and 15. But uh, 50 years, congratulations. And uh, I heard a story about a guy who was married for over 50 years, and someone was asking him, man, how, how do you do it? I mean, how, how do you, you know, keep a marriage together for so long? And he said, look, he says, I spoiled my wife. I've, I've taken care of her. He said, for, for our 25th anniversary, I took her to China. He said, wow, that's, that's really something. That's a major trip. He said, how did, you, how did you outdo that for your 50th? He said, I went back and got her. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I didn't know these people, but uh, some people have a certain formula for success in their marriage, and if it, if, if it works, maybe there's a time of uh, separation, so I don't know that you need 25 years, but... Now, the reason why we appreciate these foundational verses in Genesis, talking about the normality of life, God created male and female, Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve, and it's uh, the perversion, the confusion that we're seeing in our culture today, which is there's such a pressure on the rest of us to conform to this, we can't even say anything about it, except in a forum like this. We're here in a Bible church. We, we know the Bible is true. We know that uh, God doesn't wink at uh, the sodomite perversion. And you know, when I say sodomites, that's the scriptural description of the homosexual, uh, homosexual plague that is uh, really messing our world up. And, uh, you know, over these last couple of years, we've seen it getting worse and worse and ramping up. And now this transgender thing, which is even more bizarre, is, is, is it's very, very upsetting. But... We believe in the Word of God. We know the Lord is still in control. And having said that, I want to take you to 2 Timothy 3, where the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. And I want to, uh, well, every time I want to start at one verse, I look at a couple of the other ones, and I say, well, let's start a little earlier. Let's, let's go back to verse 12. This is 2 Timothy Chapter 3, starting with uh, verse 12. And <laughs> we may see this, folks. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou. Here's where the Apostle Paul gets to his exhortation to Timothy. But you, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. For this purpose, verse 17, that the man of God, and that includes women too, may be perfect Throughly, not thoroughly, but throughly furnished unto all good works. This is where our answer lies, right here. Now, uh, a couple of you, a couple of you, probably more than a couple, were here a couple of weeks ago when I, when I did that, that uh, illustration of how some people hold their Bibles down here, or, or worse yet, down there. They're above the Scriptures. And then there are those, there's a very popular thing now where people... Are, are holding the Bible out in front of them, and they're, they're putting the Bible, they don't totally diss it, they don't totally discount it, but they're not totally under it either. They're putting it out on a level, even with their intellect, and they say, well, I'll tell you what makes sense, you know, uh, you can't believe everything in here, come on, we're smarter than that. You know, this is the type of Tommy Rot that, that people, everybody knows what Tommy Rot is, right? 
I'm sure you do. You're from West Texas. You, you know what Tommy Rot is. Just <laughs> plain old dumb foolishness. Tommy Rot is what it is. But we put the Bible out there and say, well, I'll, I'll let you know. We can believe this. We can believe it. And, you know, that puts us as a judge over Scripture when we put it on the same level. But this is where we ought to be. The Scriptures are up here. You believe 2 Timothy 3 and 16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's up here. We're down here. And uh, that is the safest place to be. And I think that we will not be disappointed as we come into the final judgment, which we will. We're all going to be there. Nobody's going to escape the judgment. And when we have willfully put ourselves unto the, uh, under the Word of God, we know we're going to be. Okay, so... That was uh, the topic that I wanted to talk to you about in relation to all the crazy. The reason why we think all these things are crazy that are going on is because we have an anchor. We have some foundation, foundational stability in the scriptures, which more and more, even in churches, this is very disturbing, even in churches, you know, they've got the Bible out there on their thing and, and the, the pastor or their pastorette or, or you know, whoever it is who's, who's doing the preaching, if it's preaching at all, is subject unto their intellect and how modern culture, political correctness is determining what we'll preach and what we won't preach. And that is not going to fly. That is not pleasing unto the Lord. And we, uh, we certainly don't ever want to be uh, sucked into that, to that uh, web of deception. So a couple of things about the Word of God. Uh, there is no more amazing, and, and by the way, I, I, I'm, I'm still kind of spilling over from our reading the 119th Psalm last week. Wasn't that good? Did you ever come to Sunday school and read 176 verses? <laughs> Bible, Bible, Bible. <laughs> we like the Bible. And uh, 171 of those 176 have a direct reference, one of the eight uh, descriptive words uh, which uh, the inspired author uh, refers to the scriptures, and by the way, they're talking about Old Testament scriptures, but we understand it's all folded into our, our blessed new, new and Old Testament corpus, the body of scripture, testimonies of the Lord, ways, these are the ways, the words that are translated, which all refer to the word of God, the testimonies, the ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, and word, and, and, and even in a couple of places in that 119th Psalm, it refers to the fear of the Lord, which is based on the Scripture. Fear not in an inordinate, nervous, uh, abnormal sense, but a fear in that we have a reverential respect for the Word of God. Uh, like Timothy, who the Apostle Paul reminded him from a child, you, you've been, it was his mother and his grandmother that uh, tutored him, so to speak, and for those of us that were fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian atmosphere and a Christian home, it's like we hit the spiritual kingdom of God lottery that we had nothing to do with. What do you do with something like that? It's humbling, and we stand before God and say, Lord, why, why, why me? We know how bad we are. You can say amen to that, <laughs> we know we're crooked, we're rotten on the inside. This is not an up with people message. <laughs> there is none that doeth good, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And uh, for people who are not acutely aware of their sinful heritage and condition, it's because they don't know how holy and pure God is. So the holiness of God, the horror of sin, and the uh, uh, pathetic condition of man are all interrelated. And man, of course, being deluded by his own thinking, disregarding the word of God. What has he got to go on? Where's your anchor? Where's your foundation for truth? And they say, oh, well, there is no truth. We know that's wrong. And uh, by the way, for people who like empirical evidence, if you look back on history, on any culture where missionaries have gone in and evangelized the people, whether they're some primitive tribe in Southeast Asia or South America where the Bible has taken root. It has transformed that people and that culture and that society to where they were more of like what the Lord wants us to be. We tend to look at ourselves here in the U.S. because we're just by nature of our own prideful 
uh, swollen heads, you know, we're, we're very ethnocentric. We tend to think that everything revolves around the way we do church here. And uh, if you've ever met any people from Africa, that will rock your world. You know, I, uh, we had a friend, I'd say we, uh, my wife and I were very close to this guy, a friend that I made in seminary from Burkina Faso. And uh, when, when I used to see this guy walking around, the he's a skinny, skinny as a rail. And he had these scars cut in his face. They looked like sergeant stripes, but they were three scars. And uh, he was just a scary looking, you know. Uh, when I got to know him, he was the godliest, most precious man of God I've ever met. Those scars in his face were put there by his tribe that he grew up with. His name was Puska Zango Etienne. Puska was the name of the tree his family worshipped in Africa. Zango was his family name, and Etienne, which is French for Stephen, was the name that he adopted upon his Christian conversion. You know, so we, we, we just knew him as, as Etienne, but his whole name was Puska Zango. You know, kind of like if... Uh, you know, if Don, if, if you were raised over there, you'd be a mesquite test Don. <laughs> you know, if, if your family worshipped a mesquite tree or a live oak, you know, or, you know, you know, just whatever you are. Yeah, Chuck. Another example is Tom Phil. That's right. He is another example. Yeah. Too bad he's not here. He, he, can't, he can't speak for himself today. Yeah. See, Sean Siv growing up and uh, was a, a, a Buddhist monk and uh, coming out of what he came out of, he's got quite a fascinating story. So anyway, I just want to beat this drum a little bit more and tell you how, how blessed we are to have the Word of God. Uh, I told you last week, I, I wrote some things on the board. Uh, the 119th Psalm tells us what it is, what it does, and what we have to do with it. It's the largest chapter centrally located, which is not coincidental. And here's the thing. If God has spoken, and we believe that He has through the words of inspired Scripture, but let's just posit this by saying, if God has spoken, there's nothing more important than that we listen. What can be more important? We know this is the Word of God, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home where uh, I, I, I say this, I, I had the plan of salvation handed down to me on a silver platter. My mother was a Sunday school teacher, my father was a deacon and a treasurer in a small church, a very small church. But I mean, they, my parents had drug problems. They drugged me to church Sunday morning. They drugged me Sunday night. They drugged me to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. They, <laughs> that was their drug problem. They drugged me. They drugged me everywhere. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't like it then, but oh, how I appreciate it and how I'm, I thank God almost every day for my parents that I had nothing to do with. And for the rest of you that were born into a Christian a family with some godly tutelage and teaching like uh, Timothy had. Uh, I can honestly tell you, there's never been a time in my life where I did not know that the Word of God was the real deal. Even when I was a temporarily insane prodigal son. It's very hard to be a prodigal son when your mother's always reminding you, you know, we named you after the best of the new and the best of the old. Paul David! Apostle Paul and King David. My mother's always reminding me of that. And I'm, here I am going out to run around with a bunch of ingrates in a motorcycle gang. And my mother will tap me on her shoulder on a Friday night. Paul, you live for Jesus now. <laughs> oh, oh, how I hated that conviction. But uh, you can get rid of it. It takes a while. You got to shake it off. You drown it with a little bit of alcohol. It'll, it'll go, but it'll come back. Oh, how I'm thankful for that conviction. That made me uncomfortable. In those years of insane, prodigal, babbling, and wandering. So, God has spoken, and there's really nothing important than that we listen. Now, in this context that we're looking at in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul telling Timothy, Continue thou in the things that thou have learned. You learned them from a child. And then he tells us that... Uh, uh, in, in this, the, really, the, the main verse, verse number 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration comes from a combined Greek word, theonoustos, which even if you don't know Greek, you can, you can figure that out. Theos is the basis for God, and noustos 
is the uh, word also for spirit, for breath, for wind. Uh, those of us, men, if you have pneumatic tools, pneuma, it's air-powered. And uh, so inspiration, theonoustos, means God breathed. This book that we have is the result of God breathing into the men that wrote it. And I'm, I'm going to read you a verse here in a little bit, or we'll reference it in 2 Peter 1.21, how God did this. Uh, you know, because, see, people have all kinds of stumbling stones that they put in front of their own uh, intellect, because they got the Bible out here, maybe. Most of them have it down here. They're not really, and really they're not wanting that insight and inspiration because they want to keep doing what they want to do. I was going to tell you this testimony, and I didn't know when I was going to tell you, but I used to preach on the street. Some of you might have known that. I, I know. You, you picture some madman ah, screaming on the street, but they're not all madmen. Some of them are just called to preach, and they don't have any place to go. So we just preach on the street corner. And uh, I was a loud mouth before I became a Christian. Blah, I'd be barking at the moon 2 o'clock in the morning, just acting a fool. After I became a Christian, I was still very loud and boisterous about my faith, and I felt like preaching, and I didn't have a place to go. So I'd preach on a street corner. I, I preached in downtown Uvalde, which isn't much of a congregation, but at least I, I, I preached there. Uh, when I'd travel up north to visit my parents, I preached on Wall Street, right in lower Manhattan. There, there's a, a crowd that will, you know, heckle you and, and spit at you and, and uh, make fun of you. But uh, one, one of the things I really remember, there was a holiday weekend up in Concan. Everybody know where Concan is? Concan, about 20 miles north of Uvalde. Beautiful little setting on the Frio River, not far from Garner State Park. And uh, it was a holiday weekend. It was a Memorial Day, 4th of July. And there's a bunch of people there. Everybody camps out alongside the Frio River. And if the river is flowing good, they're floating down on tubes and everything. It's a, it's a great time. Well, I thought, hey, here's a great place where I can holler and preach to a lot of people at the same time. Now, the, the reason I'm telling you this is, is to illustrate the point that there's some people that don't want to hear it. They, they may even know it's true, but they don't want to hear it. So I was working in a sheet metal shop as I was preparing for my ministerial call. And uh, I knew, well, this America, I have freedom of speech. <laughs> this is over 40 years ago. <laughs> I think we had more of it then than we have now. And I said, well, as long as I'm on public property, you know, sometimes they say you have to be standing under a, a, an American flag. You had freedom of speech. You could say whatever you want. So I figured, well... I know a lot of the land alongside the Frio River is pri privately owned, but the river itself is state property. So I'll just go stand out in the middle of the river. And, you know, it, it wasn't that deep. You know, even at the deepest part, probably only up to your knees. And uh, I had me a megaphone that I made out of sheet metal in my sheet metal shop. And I began to preach. You may be thinking, man, you've got to be crazy. Well, it's a very hard thing. It, the fear... And, you know, the, the satanic uh, 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 opposition that you get, shut up, people are going to think you're crazy. But when the pressure to do it is more frightening for you to not do it and not obey God than to do it, well, that's why I did it. And, boy, once you start, I mean, I, I forgot, you know, I, I might start on a verse like, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, once it starts, boy, it just begins to flow. And it's really a, quite a glorious thing. <laughs> I had something unusual happen this day. I'm preaching, hollering, telling people about Jesus, John the Baptist. And all of a sudden, this guy starts bounding down the hill, right alongside the hill. There's a bunch of campsites, and he's screaming, shut up, shut up. And I mean, he, he was really freaking out. And he's running down the hill saying, shut up, shut up. And he got right in my face, walked right out in the river, got right in my face, the crazy eyes. And he said, shut up, shut up. I said, man, i got to hear what this guy has to say. So he says, uh, you listen to me. i got people up here renting campsites from me, and they're doing things they ain't supposed to be doing, and I don't want you telling them about it. <laughs> now, that was, that's about as honest as you can get. He, he told me there's people, and I know that there's people up there doing what they're not supposed to do. I wasn't highlighting them specifically. I was just preaching to whoever had ears to hear. And apparently there would be, this guy knew I was telling the truth. He knew I was proclaiming truth and warning people about things that they were doing, but he didn't want me to, because it affected his income and his business. And uh, more often than not, people will compromise their, uh, their, their proclamation of the word of God, because they're afraid that it might not be good for business. So 
for whatever that's worth. That was, uh, that's something I'll never forget. I can still see that guy's crazy eyes. I said, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. I, yeah, right. Well, I, I was on public property. I don't care. You're, and I think he came down after I was preaching about 20 minutes. And, you know, when you're hollering at the top of your voice 20 minutes, you know, right around that time, you know, your, your voice starts to go and, you know, you need a little break. So I, I, I probably, I might have stopped. Uh, I didn't stop. Oh, yeah, that was, oh, that was, yeah, that was sweet. Yeah, yeah. My pastor, who I'm still very close friends, he was my, pet, my first pastor when I got saved. Little Assembly God Church in Uvalde, Texas. And, you know, this is back in the late 70s, like 77 or early 78. And uh, the downtown movie theater was going to start showing X-rated movies on Friday and Saturday night. So our pastor got the youth group together and said, we're going to go down there and give out tracts. Oh, it was, it was great. So we're standing there in the middle of North Getty Street, right in front. People are coming in. We're handing out tracts. And, uh, boy, you talk about something's bad for business. <laughs> and the manager of the theater came out, and he said to our pastor, Don White, he said, listen, he said, uh, he said this is affecting everything. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And my pastor said, that's okay, you could ask us. And <laughs> we just kept, just kept on giving out the tracks. Woo! I'm saying, you know, when you take a bold step for the word of God and for the truth of God, it's a great thing. It's a, they not only stopped showing those movies, that theater is now a church. So, what do you think about that? So, uh, you know, that reminds me, when, when Voltaire, that famous loudmouth babbling atheist of the French Revolution, he was always dissing the Word of God. God is dead, and the Word of God. He said, oh, within a hundred years, uh, nobody's going to have a Bible. Anyway, Voltaire, after he died, his house was the headquarters of a Bible distributing society. So, uh, <laughs> distributing society. So, <laughs> it's like <laughs> the Lord has a sense of humor. Oh, yeah. So, uh, hold it up here, folks, and let's... Now... There is a fourfold description that we have in this uh, verse 16, right after the Theonustos, the breath of God as the inspiration for these scriptures. He says, number one is profitable for doctrine. And then he says, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, the way I have this outlined, just to give us a handle on it, number one, the official uh, use of scripture as literature that we have is that it's profitable for doctrine. That's the formal uh, umbrella, the, the overall head of what it is. Where do we get our marching orders? How do we know what's right? This book is profitable for doctrine. It teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us about sin. It teaches us about judgment to come and about how to live apart from the world and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. It's a, a great thing. It's profitable for doctrine. But here's the thing I found interesting as I was looking at this. The three subheadings under the fact that Scripture is profitable for doctrine is that it's good for reproof, instruction, uh, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. I want to read it out of the, uh, the Pew Bibles that we have all Scripture breathed out by God. See, I, I'm reading now out of our Pew Bible, the English Standard Version. All Scripture breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. That's pretty much on the same on the same realm, just using a couple of different words. So here's the deal. Profitable for doctrine is the main thing. And then under that are three things. Reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Here's the thing you need to notice. Two out of three of those are negative. Reproof and correction. And the result of that is instruction in righteousness. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I can tell you as a pastor and talking to people, uh, people don't like to be reproved. Or corrected. They want to be affirmed. They want someone to glad hand them and be a smiling jack. <laughs> Everything's great. You're okay. I'm okay. Pat them on the back. Ah, just get and do what you're doing. Everything's going to be all right. People don't like to be reproved or corrected. It affects us. It, it hurts our feelings. It hurts our pride and the fact that I'm autonomous and I can do what I want to do. <laughs> I don't need some preacher telling me what I can't do. Well, it's, if the preacher is faithful to the Word of God, it's not the preacher who's telling you, it's the Word of God that's informing you. So, uh, and, and that's what it's for. That's the nature of Scripture. You say, well, 
why is there two negative and only one seemingly positive where it says it's good for instruction and righteousness? Well, we're kind of twisted. Yeah, we're kind of messed up. Yeah. We, we, we need correcting. We need reproving. We may not like it, but we have to have it. So I come to a church. I hear a sermon out of the word that's profitable for doctrine. Yet I have a crooked bent because if we're honest with ourselves, there's a crooked inclination that we're leaning, even as Christians, there's this constant pressure from uh, peer pressure from people around us. We have this constant pressure inclining us to go the wrong way, do the wrong thing, not speak the right thing. And either we cave into it or we uh, lose friends. And it's okay if, if we lose friends that people uh, say, uh, you know, you're just a little bit too narrow. I'm thinking of this one person that uh, left our church. Well, we had so many of them. <laughs> I just have to think, <laughs> have to narrow it down. Uh, uh, I, I was preaching the, the narrow way and, and talking. And, and I used as, a, as an illustration once, I said, let me tell you something. If you were on a narrow mountain road that was chiseled into the side of a mountain, you know, there's some people that like to see how close to the edge that they could get. See, like, for instance, well, if I could illustrate this, let's say this is the road that's right alongside a, 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 a cliff. And by the way, there are a lot of roads like this in Colorado right now. You know, and some people, they want to see how close, you know, they like driving close to the edge. Well, I want to be way over here. I want to be as close to the mountain as I possibly can, as far away from that edge. But some people like to get closer to the edge. So I use it as an illustration once. I said, I'm telling you, you're better off staying. And this one woman, in this case, she happened to be the spokesman for the family. That doesn't always happen, but this was the case this time. You know, it wasn't her husband who came and told me this. It was her. She said, you know, I kind of think you're pushing us a little bit too close to that uh, mountain. I think, you know, we'd... You know, we, we kind of like to get a little bit closer to that edge. Well, that's okay for you if you want to take that chance, if you want to live that dangerously. By the way, there's another illustration I heard. There was a, a bus route somewhere, I think it was in Peru, uh, where this really hairy road is, and they were interviewing the potential drivers. And the question that they asked the drivers was, how close do you think you could get to the edge of that? And the ones who would say, oh, I could drive within a foot of it. I could drive within two feet. You know, oh, I could drive within six inches. Those are the ones that never got the job. It was the ones who said, I'm going to stay as far away from that as possible. That's common sense. And that's what we ought to do. You know, when, when we know we're walking close to a, a, a precipice or, or a cliff, and there's no guardrail, and one slip, one fall could be disastrous, why wouldn't we want to stay? And that's why we need to be reproved and corrected. You're walking too close to the edge. I'm going to warn you, Sandy. What do you got? We know this, we believe it, and most of us, I'm repeating so that we can get on the tape. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. How do we love them and convince them that it's right when they're Yeah. Well, this is not meant to be a gloss over easy answer, but we really depend on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit all the time. Uh, I can tell you at 45 years of trying to convince people, if they don't have ears to hear, if the Lord is not preparing their heart, if Jesus is not drawing them, you might as well be quoting verses to your German shepherd. You know how the dog will look at you when you... <laughs> and people will look at you the same way. What does that mean? Why, why, why are you even saying that? And uh, I remember one guy when I was preaching in Uvalde downtown. This old cowboy pulled up in his pickup, rolled down his window. He had his 
pretty girlfriend with him. He said, what are you screaming about? <laughs> and I, I kept on preaching, but I was screaming because I, I had a burden to, to preach. And, uh, but people just don't think it's a big deal. You know, they, they think it's kind of a joke, and, uh, but it's not a joke. And, and I can tell you, for the people that still do preach on a street corner now, yeah, some of them might be a little out of whack, but uh, some of them just might be very excited about their conversion experience, and uh, they just have to tell somebody, and, and the Lord gives them that Holy Ghost combustion inside of them where it just has to come out, and they have to preach. And so they go to the street corner, and uh, the Lord only knows how His Word being publicly proclaimed in a setting like that will be uh, effectual over, o over time. So, uh, amazing scripture, kind of negative, because there's the two things. Uh, people don't like negatives. They like sappy positives. Yeah, you, they, they, tell me I'm good. Tell, tell me I'm okay. No, you're not okay, all right? <laughs> and, and neither am I. <laughs> there's none to do with good. No, not one. I'm not trying to put you down. I'm telling you that when we have a realistic view of ourselves, and we know how bad sin is, we have to admit it, that we need help and we need, we need the Lord. So anyway, we know this. Knowledge is power, but only if you use it. You can have 30 verses memorized and be able to quote them in a setting like this, but when you need them is when you're by yourself and the tempter is there and he's trying to get you to compromise on something, You don't always have to say the whole Lord's Prayer. Sometimes you could just pull out that one part that says, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Oh, Lord, that I might not. I like Calvin's translation better. That I might not be tempted. Deliver me from the evil one. That's a part of the Lord's Prayer that you could pull out and use anytime. You don't have to start, oh, our Father who art in heaven. You don't pray over your food and, and forgiveness and everything. Get right to the temptation part. Oh, God. Oh, that I might not be tempted. Deliver me from the evil one. And I can guarantee you, you pray like that and you mean it, that tempter has to go. He'll be back <laughs> in another way, <laughs> another approach. <laughs> He's always coming back, but you'll get rid of him right then. And you'll feel it. You'll feel that demonic presence. Gotta go! Because <laughs> when you invoke the one who's in you who's greater than him, <laughs> well, he has to go. He has to obey. It's been said that he, the, the Lord has the devil on a leash. I wish it was a shorter leash but, and a tighter collar, but one of these days he's fixing to jerk him back, and it's going to be over for sure. So we love the Scriptures. We get all of our marching orders from it. The Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. I love that phrase out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You don't judge the Word of God. You don't judge the Word of God. The Word of God judges you. That's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. Judgment Day is not going to be by popular opinion. Well, let's see how everybody votes here. No. What the Word of God says. This is how we prepare for the judgment. You know, for people who say, how do you know? Well, we read the book, go to church, hear a good sermon. And the scripture is sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and if you don't believe that, just notice how it cuts people living in sin and not wanting to hear the truth. Or maybe someone who owns a campground alongside the river who doesn't want their business to be affected because of some loudmouth young preacher punk kid. So listen to this. Here's some facts about the uh, scriptures. It's written over a span of 1,600 years by 40 different authors ranging from prophets, priests, king, fishermen, fig pickers. Amos was a fig, fig picker. <laughs> fishermen, shepherds, prophets, priests, kings. Uh, all of these people, uh, how did they get it all on the same overall theme? Where these 66 books written over 1,400 years by 40 different authors how is it all such a cohesive, together body of Scripture? How did that happen? That's exactly right, Chuck. Chuck said the Holy Spirit. It's the inspiration of God. Whether he was inspiring Moses or Peter or the Apostle Paul or Amos, Obadiah, Solomon, 
David, no matter who he was inspiring, we have now, we have the benefit of looking back over thousands of years of scholarship. Let me tell you, folks, no book, no literature has been picked apart like these holy scriptures. And for the people who say, oh, well, there's a lot of uh, contradictions, these, these people are idiots and they don't know what they're talking about. They're talking out of the vast storehouse of their ignorance. They really don't know how legit these holy scriptures are. So when we hear our pastors in this church say after they read the passage, the grass, the flower withers, the grass fades away, but the word of the God, the word of the Lord endures forever. That's, that's the real deal. That's something that we treasure and we cherish. And it's good to be on the side of those who will put ourselves under it rather than thinking that we have to be smart enough to figure it out. So it is a proven masterpiece of one mastermind. I like the way Peter put it. 2 Peter 1.21, holy men of old were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit to make this happen. You know, for people who answer, how did this happen? The Holy Spirit carried people, moved them along. It's like he was taking them on his own little magic carpet ride. I don't want to mix metaphors into some funky magic carpet type thing, but uh, how the Holy Spirit over time moved different authors. And then what we have now, see, not only are we the most fortunate generation to ever live, we're the most accountable because we've got so much. And Jesus said, where much is given, much is required. So even more than people who lived 100, 200, 300 years ago, you know, you read what the reformers wrote, guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, some of these great, Jonathan Edwards, some of these great, great, great intellects. They didn't just go and Google stuff. They pulled it down. They pulled down literature. They didn't have even card catalogs to work through. They just had to know stuff, and they spent this immense amount of time. And the fruit of their labors in legitimizing and encouraging us, because everything they wrote about the Scripture, it just kind of makes the Scriptures more what it is. We love the Scriptures. But when we read the writings of those people like John Calvin, I, he's one of my favorites, you, know, you can't read things that he wrote and say, what insight this guy had. But the reason why it's so glorious is because the Scriptures that he's expounding are inspired. And that, that ought to give you goosebumps. So, as holy men of old. I like another one of Peter's phrases, which is out of the same chapter, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 19. We have, and, and this is Peter describing all the Old Testament scriptures, because when Peter's writing this, which would eventually become part of the New Testament, he didn't know that it was. The Apostle Paul didn't know that his letters were going to be uh, authenticated and, and used now 2,000 years later. But Peter said this about the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew that the Old Testament scriptures were sufficient to tell us about Jesus who is coming. He said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. I love that phrase. In fact, I want to see how, how uh, a, a more sure word of prophecy. Yeah, in, 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 our, in our Pew Bible, verse 19, says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Man, I'll tell you, for an ignorant fisherman, this guy sure had a way with words, didn't he? Woo! That's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turbocharging Peter, <laughs> denying, cussing commercial fisherman Peter. Anybody here know any commercial fishermen? <laughs> they don't have a lot of tact. <laughs> They don't control their language very much. And my wife has, we have commercial fishermen up in Rhode Island in the family. I mean, these guys are about as tough. 2,000 years ago, commercial fishermen were the exact same way. Fish ain't biting. <laughs> and Jesus comes along and says, throw the net on the other side of the boat. Ah, oh, come on. Throw the net on the other side of the boat. So sometimes the difference between success and failure is the width of the boat. If Jesus is in a boat with you. So uh, don't be in a boat without Jesus. It's the only thing afloat. So everything else is going to sink. So this more sure word of prophecy, it's glorious. And, uh, and you do know that there are other uh, uh, prophetic outlets that are out there vying for your attention. And if you don't believe me, just take a ride down Military Drive. You'll see Sister Lupita's red palm in front of the sort of reader and advisor. <laughs> I was going to get me one of those and put it in front of my church once. Brother Paul, reader and advisor. 
I thought maybe people go, I'm a reader. I'm an advisor. I'm going to read the scripture. I'm going to advise you. Do what the scripture says. There's people that are readers and advisors that are totally different. It's prophetic, and some of that stuff might have a funky, dark spiritual side to it, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. So, to summarize, as Ron is going to be getting into his topic, and he, he's going to talk about you know, the leaving and the cleaving, you know, how uh, it's, it's such a totally uh, balanced perspective of how life ought to be. The reason why we put so much weight and so much uh, confidence in the scriptures is because they are inspired. This isn't just some ancient opinion. You know, people like to say, oh, you don't know this, you don't know that. These are people that are talking out of these vast storehouse of their ignorance, and they don't know how legitimate and how dependable the Word of God is. So, when Ron goes back and he's talking about a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his life. By the way, someone has said, I don't know who this was, but they said that Adam was the most fortunate married man that there ever was because he didn't have any in-laws. <laughs> but neither did Eve. Eve didn't have any in-laws either. And sometimes it could be the in-laws on either side that could be a source of, uh, of, of, of trouble. But you know what? You can get through it. If you leave and you cleave, what did you say, 66 years? 67 years. How many years were you married, John? 67. Well, we got a couple of long timers here, man. 67 years. God bless you. God bless you for your faithfulness. You can say the word of God is true, right? And your daughter's sitting right there. It gets the, gets the spillover benefit of having parents that are married that long. They do, right? She has a, a, a stable example. Some of us come from families where that stability does not exist. And maybe you'll be the first one to show that stability to your children. But do it and honor God in all of what you're doing and uh, just watch and see how the Lord makes this work to your advantage. Okay. Are there any uh, questions or follow-ups? Uh, uh, again, again, I want to remind you, <laughs> start looking for something stupid. <laughs> it won't be easy to find. <laughs> watch the news tonight. <laughs> Take notes. You'll have a whole page full. Do you have it? I have it. Let me see it. This is the, uh, the Bonhoeffer Declaration, what he wrote in the uh, early 30s as he saw... See, I thought we might do the first section. Okay. What, what Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor. You know this already. This guy was seeing things based on his reverence and respect for the inspiration of Scripture. He saw the German church starting to be watered down by political correct pressure. Isn't it something how the, the same things that are plaguing the church today were the same things that were plaguing the church 90 years ago in Germany? People, we are stupid sheep, and we need shepherds that will stand up and say, no way, it's not going to happen. And Bonhoeffer was one of those. So let me read you this, uh, <laughs> The Theory of Stupidity by Bonhoeffer. Uh, this is... Okay, this is taken from a circular letter addressing many topics written to three friends and co-workers in the conspiracy against Hitler on the 10th anniversary of Hitler's accession to the Chancellorship of Germany. I'm just going to read you this first, this first paragraph here, just about four or five sentences. Listen to this and just see how it lines up to what we see happening in our world today. Stupidity is, more, is a more dangerous enemy than the good... That, Stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest against evil. It can be exposed and, if need be, prevented by use of force. Evil always carries within itself the germ of its own subversion in that it leaves behind in human beings at least a sense of unease. Very important. Against stupidity, we are defenseless. Neither protests nor the use of force accomplish anything here. Reasons fall on deaf, deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply mean not to be believed. And I, that's how people diss the Scripture now. Well, you believe that? I don't. And their stupidity is flourishing 
in that darkness. In such moments, the stupid person even becomes critical. When facts are irrefutable, they are just pushed aside as inconsequential, as incidental. In all this, the stupid person, in contrast to the malicious one, is utterly self-satisfied and, being easily irritated, becomes dangerous by going on the attack. For that reason, greater caution is called for than with a malicious one. Never again will we try to persuade the stupid person with reasons, for it is senseless and dangerous. I just read something over the last couple of weeks that Mark Twain said about arguing with stupid people. And, you know, he was pretty good at turning a phrase. He said, never argue with stupid people because they'll drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. <laughs> that's, that's beat you with experience. Yes, never argue with stupid people because they will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. See, they have more experience in their stupidity than we do. You know, you, you try. I've argued with a lot of stupid people, and I wasted my time trying to convince them, and I realized these people did not have ears to hear. They were not interested in anything scriptural. Uh, the Lord was not dealing with them. If anything, they were just there just trying to throw a wrench in the works and stop a gospel witness from going out. There's really no need that we waste time on, on people like this. Bonhoeffer is trying to address the stupidity that is leaching into the church. Just like we're seeing churches now that are going along with uh, some of these politically bizarre movements. Uh, you, know, the, you know, we believe the Black Lives Matter. We believe all lives matter. But that Black Lives Matter movement, that's a political, that's a bad outfit, man. I'm, I'm telling you. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to offend you if, if you've got a Black Lives Matter thing. But uh, it's the same thing with pride. You see a pride rainbow? I'm going to get me a pride rainbow, put it on my car. Can I remind you that God hates pride? He hates all kinds of pride. And what pride could be more damnable and dangerous than pride in your perversion? Pride in your, in your uh, stuck-up, haughty spirit. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And they're proud of it. And that's what the whole pride thing is about. So, and we would say stupid on top of that. Yeah, Chuck, one more comment. Uh-huh. Yes. But that axis is moving so that the Arctic ice is melting and the mountains are moving. Uh-huh. How about that? Well, <laughs> the axis of evil, yeah. <laughs> But you know what? God is over that axis. He's the one that cocked it, what is it, 14 and a half degrees, just right to where it's spinning with precision. You know, one of these days, I'm going to tell you about the most accurate clock that was ever made. I don't have time now, but I'll, I'll tell you about this clock that was made in Copenhagen, Denmark. Cost over a million dollars to make the most accurate clock, accurate to within two-fifths of a second every 250 years. That's a pretty accurate clock, but I'll tell you about that some other time. We're finished. We should, we should pray in our conclusion. Lord, Father, we pray that you would help us with our facing the, the common stupidity in our culture, Lord, that is in some cases may even be trying to find its way into our churches, Lord, that we would, we would use wisdom, we would be rooted and grounded in the Word, and we would be redemptive in all of our acts and thoughts towards other people, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we agree together. Amen. Amen. Amen.